Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spend literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz, and in today's episode, we will discover how to create attention-grabbing visuals for social media and how you can change your approach to get eyeballs on your work right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 160. But hold on, if you enjoy this podcast, please join the Camera Shake community over on camerashakepodcast.com so that you're the first ones to know when we've got some exciting news for you. You'll find the link in the description, or if you're watching on YouTube, and I don't forget to put it there, it'll be right down here somewhere on the screen. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the Photoshop guru, illustrator, author, educator, the design ninja himself. Give it up for Mr. Tony Harmer. Tony, hey. how's it going? Hey, man. It's good. Thank you. Thank you for having me along. Well, great to have you on the show. Uh, we met, I believe we met at the photography show. We did. Last time. and. We did. Uh, and you've, I know you've, you've uh, had multiple sort of, uh, you know, speaking engagement at the show. How did it go for you there? Yeah, it was good. It was good. I'm always there to wreak my own three hours of havoc in, in easily digestible chunks. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I like, uh, I like doing the photography show. I just wish it was every year again. Yeah, you it's, know. it's a great environment. Um, I've only been, I've only been, well, actually I've only been there for the last two years so since the pandemic really and of course the yeah. first year was a little bit you know it was a little bit quieter um but last year was great actually i thought yeah it's good it was good but i can understand why they're you know maybe thinking well every other year is better but uh, there's probably a whole load of reasons for that which i i don't know but anyway it's good that it's still there that's the main thing i love yes. doing that show exactly um tony you've been I mean, I, I called you um, a Photoshop guru and uh, the design engine himself. I mean, you've been educating online um, for at least, I would say, well, since 2014 or even longer than that? Uh, okay, yeah, so even longer than that, um, really. The, the first time I got attached to a major library would have been with lynda.com, and that was in 2014. So that started back then. Um so that will be, that's pretty good. Uh, before that, I had, I used to have a thing called 4T, uh, which was one of the first things that brought me to the attention of Adobe. And that ran since 2004. So 10 years before that. Uh, and that was Tony's Tips, Tricks, Techniques. <laughs> oh, my word. <clears throat> that seems like a whole other lifetime ago. But yeah, no, so I've done that. But formal courses and everything for, for about 10 years, yeah. What motivated you originally to get into teaching? Uh, well, I've been a lecturer as well, to be honest. I've done part-time lecturing. I lectured at the City of Bath College. I lectured at Strode College in Somerset. Um, I've done guest lecturing bits all over the place. I, I, you know, I, it, for anybody that sees my face, they know that I'm well and truly over 21. Uh, and I've got a lot of stuff in my head that I've acquired over... Uh, my lifetime, it's pointless just keeping that all in my head. You know, I'd much rather put that out into the world to help people develop and hopefully exceed anything I've ever done. 
So, you know, that's that's it. That is the motivation for doing it. I mean, to, to take lecturing, motivation certainly isn't money. Um, you know, the money's okay, but it is only okay. Online teaching slightly different. There is a, you know, there is, the, the, you know, there can be decent money attached to that. Um, but that's not the reason I do it. I just like sharing. It's a good thing to do. You seem to have a real passion for teaching, and uh, and I think you know that really comes across in the way that you that you teach and the approaches that you use. When you first got into online teaching, which at the time was sort of a new medium, um, were you immediately aware that that was going to be a really effective way to teach people? It it felt like more of an effective way than it actually was at the time. So in, in when I very first began, not the Lynda.com stuff, but before that, back in like the 4T stuff and all of that stuff, it was still, um, for some people, it was still a little bit of an investment to actually try and watch any videos online back then, you know, it's, and then it, of course, that, and that seems fantastical to say that, given that it was only 20 years ago, right, but... 20 years ago, things were very different. And when I lived in rural Somerset, so um, at that at that particular time, and it wasn't the best uh, infrastructure to be trying that on. But but yeah, I mean, it it was obvious that it was going to become a thing. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I remember, because I was, I was living just outside of Milton Keynes, which, you know, is, is a yeah. city, you know, type of thing. Yeah. But I, I lived in a small village. And I remember, um, you know, when I... When I wanted to download a movie, I had to literally set up to download in the morning so that by the evening, the whole movie yeah. had downloaded so I could watch it. I was, yeah, know, it's crazy. You know, so if people needed to, um, I mean, YouTube wasn't the competitive place that it, that it now is for that stuff. And in fact, it didn't even dawn on me about using YouTube until much, much later. I guess that would have been, I'm just thinking, actually, that would have probably been about 2010, maybe, maybe a little bit after that even. Um, yeah, because it just it just wasn't a thing, you know. It just wasn't wasn't where I put my stuff, or you know. But yeah, these days, of course, you can put hour long things on, and they, and people can watch them, you know. And I do, so I put on three hours a week. So you know, there's plenty of stuff. And it, you know, now that we have YouTube, uh, which literally can teach us anything and everything that yeah. we want to learn about. I mean, I. Theoretically, theoretically, yeah. I mean, I learned I learned how to like um, how to change the the sealant on my bathtub yeah. <laughs> on YouTube the yeah. other day. You know, yeah. the, the problem I always find with YouTube is that you know the problem is especially when um, when you first get into a new subject. Like, let's say you start out with photography, for example, or, or you start out with Photoshop, or 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 how to fix your bathroom or whatever. In the very beginning, you don't really know what you don't know. And, you know, and YouTube is this massive sea of information and it's really easy to get dragged into that whole thing and, you know, sink hard and fast like the Titanic, you know, yeah. in and amongst all of this, uh, all, all of these like hundreds and thousands of, of videos that you're trying to teach you one thing and then another thing. It's very difficult to kind of see, okay, where's the progression routine? Now, I come from an education background as well. I used to teach music <clears throat> for a long time. Ah, and it, yeah, cool. You know, and I know how important progression is and having a clearly mapped out progression route through the whole thing. And, you know, even I mean, guitar, actually, to be honest, guitar, learning how to play guitar is a great thing on youtube because there's like uh, there's a myriad of, of different content on there but if i were a new guitar player now and i went into youtube it'd be so difficult 
to not get confused with the wealth of stuff that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the part of the problem is that, yeah, it is somewhere you can go to learn anything. And a lot of the time, you you kind of, you know, popular content does lead you to uh, places, although not always, and especially not in the creative industries, because you need to qualify out the people who are delivering that training. Or you can end up in the polar position from where you actually want to be. So just expanding on that slightly just for a moment so uh in i worked with adobe as a contractor for a number of years before i was on staff and uh when i did join on staff i would part of my job was workflow analysis because i am a, apparently a workflow expert i understand creative workflows with photoshop illustrator indesign and more beyond that and so i would go into big organizations, you know, like real big brand names to their creative departments and see if I could help them. Well, I had to study partly of what they were doing, but also at the same time, in order for sort of a quid pro quo arrangement for, for that study to take place, there were several reasons for that going on. Um, I would have an afternoon or a day where I would train their creative staff and I would observe some crazy, crazy practices that were taking inordinate amounts of time for something that could be done in a snap. Often, this was often the case. And I would ask them where they where they learn, you know, the application they were doing. It. So, so some people learn on the job, but the vast majority would say, yep, YouTube. And that's the risk. It's there and it's freely available. But you never know, you know, the person might be great. They might be really personable. They might be very good looking. There might be a whole bunch of other things, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified out to deliver that, that training to you. And that's where you can end up chasing your own tail. That's the worry around that. And it's always, you know, I think um, it's, if you're looking for something very specific, like, you know, skin retouching, let's say, you know, mm. um, you can get some really good videos that will teach you how to retouch skin in 15 minutes or something, right? Yeah. To an like to an acceptable level. And then you can deep dive into it if you wanted to. But for instance, for me as a portrait photographer, um, the entire retouching process encompasses much more than just retouching skin. Yeah. And at that point, you know, I think that there would be there's an advantage in having a structured, you know, progression-led course almost. Yeah that basically takes you from well i'm going to turn on my computer and upload my images to yeah. here's the final product with all the stages in between and of course uh, things like lynda.com or creative uh, creative live and stuff like that yeah. you know offer, offer those um those kind of progression routes yeah and and that's and that is the best way to approach it yeah if you if you've got an immediate need for a solution then perhaps you have to just go in and chance your arm but if you actually want to do something well, you're you're absolutely right. There is a there is a progression. Okay, so I mean, YouTube does things like you know, if you've got an immediate need, then you can probably meet that. If you're in a hurry, there's something you've got to learn to do. And, and just using music here as an analogy, right? If you were a bass player, you could teach a bass, or if you if you had to play yeah, a bass line for whatever reason, you could teach someone to play Wild Thing in about ten minutes. Yeah, and that would be fine, provided they got some sense of timing. But where to where to actually down the fret 
and whatever that would or down the strings on the fret then that that would be fine but um if you needed to actually do anything more elaborate than that then of course you'd need a progression you'd need to understand more about the fretboard you need to you know and so on plucking techniques all of these different things so youtube's great for that but you're right progression is exactly what you need so a friend of mine lisa carney i'm, I'm sure you've heard of lisa carney she is an ex she i mean she's a legend in the retouching world she does movie posters all of that good stuff and uh, she teaches i believe hers as a progressive form it's like yeah 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 i know you want to do this right now but before you do this you have to understand this you have to understand color you have to your light primarily then color then patterns and then about different skin types and then about you know because you can't just pluck the skin from your cheek or your forehead and drop it under your eyes. It's like, hello, something's not right here. You know, I think it's I think it's five different types of skin, I think, on the face, something like that. Uh, it's been a while since I've done anything like that. But the um, it's yeah, there has to be some sort of progression for you to get it and anything with any value. Yeah, there's a progression to doing it. If you could do it instantly and it was easy, there would be no value in it. Absolutely. I, mean, I remember speaking to Lisa. Lisa was actually on the show a few weeks ago or oh, right, a okay, couple cool. of months ago. Um, I will put that, yeah. the link. If you're watching on YouTube, yeah. I'll put the link um, somewhere up there. It's a very interesting, a very interesting conversation as well. Um, yeah. so, you know, the thing about creating progression um, in that sense, you know, what, what I used to do when I used to teach guitar, I said, you know, I'd, I'd have kids come in and they'd be like, you know, I want to play this song. Uh, you know, whatever, by Guns N' Roses or whatever, maybe. Yeah. And, and you know, they were clearly technically not capable of playing the song, you know. But what I would do is I would find something in that song that they could yeah. play or that they could learn. Like that might, it might be the intro of the song or it might yeah. be, you know, uh, the chords in the chorus or it might be, you know, the, whatever. Like there, yeah. there'd be a little thing in there that they could get stuck in and learn. And it wouldn't be the whole song in its entirety, but it'd be a little thing. And it would basically give them the motivation to carry on, you yeah. know, and to get better. And six months down the line, a year down the line, they'd be able to play the whole thing maybe, or they can, they, you know, I remember, I mean, I had lots of kids coming in wanting to play like Van Halen, for example. There's really no chance yeah. you can play Van Halen solo if you've only been playing the guitar for six months. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Very. But there is stuff that you can play and it's maybe, again, like I said, maybe the chords and the, in the verse of the intro or something like that. Um, what sort of teaching methods and approaches have you find most effective, um, particularly particularly in the online teaching world? Right. So, I mean, actually, first of all, I'm very, very lucky in that I've got an excellent producer, Susan, who I've worked with for the, pretty much the whole time, with only a couple of small exceptions in doing things that were outside of her uh, her. Uh, knowledge area um and she has been a great coach for those things so the way she worked she's helped me so much with my approach to, to doing things in understanding I mean, i've always been pretty lucky that i've had an understanding of the people learning it or maybe learning it for the first time i've never seen anything else so you have to you have to make sure that your steps are measured and that meet as many uh as many people as they can you you need to not um you need to not uh, alienate yourself from people who have no experience or people who have to, you know, a lot of experience. You've got to find a way of keeping both of those uh, ends into your teaching. Um, 
the key thing for me and the thing I think that that has has got me uh, quite a few people learning my stuff um, is humor. I use humor a lot to 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 make points around what I'm doing because I see that as being hooks. Yeah. If people remember, you can't do it humour for humour's sake. People aren't learning from me on how to be a comedian. There are far better people they could learn that from. But a little bit of humour at the right place to form a hook is, is the thing that I value most in my teaching, that I will try and inject most. You know, It has to be appropriate, it has to be contextual, humour is the thing that I, I approach most and a structure that tries to keep everyone engaged so changing things on the screen every five seconds is handy but not always nobody wants to look at an interface of photoshop yeah, with even an image parked on it for more than five seconds because your mind will drift you'll start thinking about other things you won't focus on what you're teaching and so that was one of the first things i picked up is try wherever possible to roll the content on or have something move in that five seconds. Even if you're opening a toolbar while you're explaining something or you're navigating around the image, anything to keep that that going. And then when you think like that, you start to teach like that. You start to build that into your teaching. Hopefully that makes sense, but that's that's kind of the way I work it. Absolutely. I mean, um, especially more recently of course you know technology and software are like constantly evolving there's been mm. massive strides that that have been made especially by adobe for example you know more mm. recently we've, we've talked about you know um about ai uh, yeah. as part of of adobe that everyone Photoshop. wants to talk uh, about at the moment yeah yeah i know i know <laughs> yeah. um how do you stay updated on the latest trends um in that regard uh so one of my uh, one of the things I do is I commit myself, and I've done this for about five, six, seven years, something like that. I learn for 15 minutes every day. Now, I don't always learn the same thing related to a piece of software, but I do allocate myself at least 15 minutes of every day to learn something. I try wherever possible to stay uh, engaged with the different pre-release groups that I'm involved in. That's the best place because you see things as they're coming along and Adobe a lot more um, friendly around their pre-release groups these days and also more open, I think, than they've ever been uh, before. So that's that's another way that I learned. That, but really, it's that 15 minutes a day, just taking something from there and spending, thinking, right, okay, tomorrow I want to learn more about creating effective prompts. Yeah. So tomorrow I'm going to find what I need and I'm going to spend 15 minutes at least looking at that. Yeah. make a couple of notes, maybe come back to it the next day. But I also think that variety is the spice of life. So if you want to leave it on the back burner and come back to it after two or three days, that's also fine. But that's that's how it's. And I write off basically August and September of every year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find it difficult to um, to sort of change your curriculum, um, you know, like constantly as there's new... Uh, new features that that pop up in in Photoshop. Uh, not all, not not difficult, and I like the fact that that um, bizarrely, some people follow my courses. They watch each year's version, the whole thing. They don't just like go and pick some updates from somewhere. They and because I have this data, they watch 
the whole I don't have it personalized but we have uh, we have a thing where we can see returning learners that come along and how and what they watch and of course they watch the whole thing all over again which is great so there's new stuff in there every year um it doesn't change it it doesn't you know i have to i have to try and include the new things but only if they fit the parameters of the course that i'm delivering so my essentials courses they they don't need necessarily some things that may have been introduced at that particular time they're not what i would consider an essential but the courses that i do for people like photoshop for in-house um, designers yeah so that's for people who, who don't necessarily capture images but people who have to work with them at scale in there those will get more of uh, new feature type stuff because they they're already in the game they're already working and doing that for a brand or an agency or whatever and things that will help them yeah they'll get more of that yeah so it depends on the context of the course if it's for an in-house course yeah then they'll get a lot more new stuff but it's just play is the best way to learn all of these things yeah. it was an interesting thing you mentioned there and this is really something I, I want to talk to you about um in particular uh in conjunction with social media and the way that yeah. we market ourselves and the impact that imagery has in um, you know on social media but one of the things that happens really all the time is, is that as a photographer of course um we're working with designers who use our images mm. to design posters flyers social media posts yeah. and all the rest of it um and and it's, it's quite an intricate relationship i think between between photographer and and designer in mm. a sense um but before i get into that can you explain um, why attention grabbing visuals are essential for engaging audiences on platforms let's say like instagram for example okay so well i mean you could see if you see a grid of things so quite often these days when you actually go to the home screen you see just a you know you either got a scroll or you've got a grid of content and you have to look at what you have to do is just be analytical on that and look at it and say why is that grabbing my attention yeah now if it's somebody in which you may be interested in on a physical level you need to kind of get rid of that straight away and just think yeah that's that's a different much more basic way of looking at things you need to look at this stuff there and base it on its color its composition composition is one of the biggest things you can change to make an impact yeah and there are so many different systems we can use to do that but that's what you need to do where is that where is that where is the subject of that particular image where are they positioned in the frame why are they positioned that way do you think you know i mean because you can never always know for truth is it an accident is it on purpose are they trying to you know they try to unsettle you for whatever reason um but you need to look at those grids of things it's a very very competitive world you know and a grid will show you that straight away when you've got all of those things you can see how competitive it is it's incredible um how i mean it's incredibly competitive not only necessarily mm -hmm. on the same platform but also you know across different platforms and then you've got yeah. You know, different media types that you can contend with nowadays even you know if you're promoting your own business as a photographer for example and you're all, i mean mm -hmm. you, you almost have to have knowledge of video for example these days because otherwise yeah. you know um so what would you say are the some of the key elements um and techniques that can help photographers uh, capture images specifically 
tailored to social media platforms? Well, not always in capture, of course, that's the thing. So sometimes, sometimes it, something that you capture may be suitable for one medium, but may need a little bit of help in a medium like Instagram, for example. I, as it happens, I kind of like shooting square, yeah, from my phone. When I do anything, I kind of like that I can, because it forces you to think about more about what you're doing right, in, in that particular format. Um, but composition is the, is the first thing that can help with that. Always, it's always composition. Yeah? If you're going to tell a story with an image, composition and the way you lead an eye around an image is the, is, is the number one thing you should perhaps think about. Yeah, and secondary to that, then all of the other things around building that image. In terms of working on them afterwards to change them from the format you intended or you saw when you captured it, I have two tricks. To, well, not really tricks, but I have two things that I use all the time. I am a big fan of neutral density layers, neutral density gradients, because they are a really good way to draw the eye into a particular part of the image. Super big fan of that. I've, I use them all the time. I actually use them in other applications from that. I even use them in, I don't know if you know what Adobe Express is, but I've even used them in there. I have um, a neutral density layer at a certain size, right? I have a few different gradients on there and I use those in Creative Cloud libraries and drop them onto content in Adobe Express to put things together quickly. And another thing is vignetting. I find vignetting, you don't have to be full on super, super old hood shape uh, vignettes on there. Even the softest vignette applied properly can do wonders for an image because that's why they're there. They're, I mean, originally, of course, they were there because they were a function of the way that light hit a plate in the back of a box camera. You know, that was, that was the way it is. But they, they are a really useful focal device. And we can, because we can put them on artificially, we can engineer the way they are. And if you're using things like Camera Raw, you don't, you're not restricted to just one single vignette, of course, you can use, you know, the raw, not necessarily the raw interpreter, you can in the raw interpreter, but even the filter, yeah, you can use it there. So those are the things that help that composition yeah, and guiding the eye yeah, with light are the two best tips I can give you uh, for creating impactful images, I think. I think that's a really important tip. I, I don't I don't remember the last image um, that I put out that ha that didn't have some form of vignette. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on no, it. I mean, your head's in a row, Sarah. That, 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 I yeah. mean, they've got, they've got, you see, they've got great focus. They've got really great. And this is the thing. This is the difficulty where two terms mean slightly different things. Of course, photographers, you think focus is this sharp. Yeah. But in the, when you're dealing with an image, focus has a different meaning. Where do you want the eye to end up and linger? Yeah. That's what you're actually asking. So that's, I mean, the great photographers normally use sharp. Is this sharp? That's what they understand. Focus is something that you do at the time of capture. Right. So, but it's, it's still those two words being used and they meaning different things. But yeah, vignetting, neutral density gradients, great way to bring in focus. Yeah, I mean, especially in the, you know, in the Three Heads in a Row series, the whole idea is, is to center the attention onto the yeah. face. Everything draws them. you to the face. You know? I love them, love them, love them. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks, man. <laughs> Working. Yeah, no, I really do.
Yeah, there's, there's some funny ones coming out uh, over the next few weeks. <laughs> yeah, I especially like Dave Williams. Is uh, Dave Williams is brilliant. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, uh, I've shot him several times, actually, as yeah. part of that. Yeah. And they're always good. <laughs> yeah, he's got a super expressive face, that guy. He's I know, brilliant. I know. His, his face is like, you know, it's like one of these spinning image, um, you know, figures. You can just mold it yeah. into anything. I'm sure he loves that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, go on. But yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, everything's um, everything's designed to uh, to draw the attention to the face, and then within the face, actually, uh, I sort of see the face as a shape within itself. It's almost like you know, you have a square, which is the main frame, but then you have another oval or you know, a circle, a circular type of shape, which is the face, and within that, everything's designed to draw the attention to the eyes. So it it's just um, you know, and that's that's why I shoot them square yeah. as well because yeah. because the subject is the center of attention yeah and you know and that's why they are in the center the amount of times like you know people have asked me like oh well you know should, shouldn't it be on a third I'm like, well no, no. <laughs> it's like what you know there's nothing else in the photo yeah. that's that's the thing so strangely enough in the thirds there is a central column <laughs> so, yes well, you know that's exactly yeah this and this is another thing this is a thing with you know there's a thing you fit on there you know with grids grids are a guide not a rule, yeah? So everybody thinks they need to aim exactly for that intersection, yeah, of the lines in a rule of thirds grid. Yeah. They're, a, they're a device to proportionally divide up a space, yeah? Yes, the human eye is are, is drawn to those four points, that is quite true, but that doesn't mean it has to be exactly on that point for it to be a successful composition. Moving things slightly to the left, right, up or down, of that point is going to work just as well. Equally as I've seen some really great results of people who completely burst the frame and do things where they've got like half a face occupying, you know, almost half the frame or even two thirds of that of that section or whatever subject it doesn't necessarily have to be a face. That can be very impactful as well. Think about how, what could I do to break this up? Yeah, and to change it from, from what it is ordinarily. I mean, three heads works perfectly the way it is. Yeah, but there might be other occasions where you think, mm-hmm. yeah, how could I break that up? Exactly. And, you know, a good example, for instance, would be something like, you know, like social media banners, like, you know, Facebook mm-hmm. banners and so on, so on and so forth. Um, of course, you, you want to create some space for text, for example, where you just need negative space in the image. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you know, that whole thing falls apart because you know it won't be a square and it won't be it won't be in the center um and of course then you know things move around a little bit um it just depends on on the end use i suppose it does s4s shooting for stock yes that's the the thing exactly yeah yeah yeah. i always call it shooting shooting with intent is yeah uh, yeah it's a nicer way let's let's brutal way of saying (laughs) (laughs) they do i mean but you know this God, things like, rule of thirds is one of my I, rule of thirds is one of my favourite um, rectilinear grid system uh, assistants to to use. Um, you see, people when people don't understand a grid, yeah, it's like people who shoot landscapes and put the horizon line right smack bang in the middle of the grid and think, well, I'm using a grid and that that fits right in the middle of those things. And of course, we know that giving prominence to the sky or the foreground is sometimes the more impactful way of doing it. So you need to play with the grid and see what will happen 
with that. And, and another thing is that I, I used the word rectilinear a moment ago, and I used it on purpose, right? Because don't forget there are other systems of grids. There's loads of different systems that you could use. And you might want to think, what would happen if I tilted the axis of this and created something, you know, that was using um, sort of uh, an axial uh, grid to do it? Right, so that's the one that is just simply divided by a single line. Yeah, and that line could be in any orientation inside that image. And that can create some exciting results when you do something. And I mean, typically, so if you ever watched old 60s versions of the of the series Batman, and if you haven't, you should, because it's so funny. <laughs> um, but you'd always notice in there when they were doing anything with the villains or when there was anything that was wrong, the camera angle was always tilted over, yeah, by anything between five to ten degrees because it's unsettling, yeah, in it. So if you want to create a sense of, of drama like that, then maybe look at what would happen. We're in a digital digital world, right? Once you've made the initial capture, what you do with it, it has no downstream consequence until you put it out there. So what's the harm in playing with it and saying, hmm, what would happen if I did tilt that over? by a few degrees and take it, you know, you need to make it enough so it is actually a statement and not just that you were leaning towards the side when you captured it. And that's the thing. You've either got to go big in that one or, or just ignore it, you know. So, but that's that's another thing you can do, I think. I think it's really important um, to to keep an open mind and, as you say, you know, experiment and play with things. Because often, yeah. you know, we, we sort of, um, sometimes we have these rules drilled into our brains, you know, like for instance, Dutch angles are bad. And, you know, I, I see this very often in like, especially in, in camera club competitions where everything's mm. like always oh, dead straight, all the horizons are dead straight and, you know, and Dutch angles are to, are to be avoided. It's like the plague. And you sometimes you go like, well, but what if? But why though? Yeah. Why? Exactly. There's no reason. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, the people who say that is because they're, they're favoring a different, you know, they favor their own format. doesn't mean that I don't, I'm not big on, on rules. Uh, in that way. I mean, I know lots of ways in which to efficiently do things and different techniques I can use, but at no point, I don't think any of my courses do I say, you should do it this way or this. I say, this is a way this can be achieved. Yeah. Or this is a way you might consider doing this. This is, these are the advantages of doing it this way, but I don't, think to my recollection i don't think i've ever said this is the way to do it or the correct way to do it there are some things where it is where there is a degree of correctness but that still doesn't rule out the alternatives of course because, in always, yeah you know how do you know until you've tried Exactly. That's and you know, especially in, in the, you know, take Photoshop as an example, there's about five different ways that you could do just about anything in Always. Photoshop, you yeah. know, and, uh, and, and <laughs> how you approach it depends on so many different things, like your own preference, for example, or just the way you like working, for example, and so on and so forth. I found that, you know, I very often come across um, videos, for example, where a particular thing um, is explained. I'm thinking, what is different from the way I do it? And, you know, and then I think about it and I kind of go, well, is that easier does it save me time or do I just feel that the way I do it is just more comfortable for me for whatever reason? Right. And that's yeah, yeah. ultimately how, how I approach things. Yeah. So it's, 
I mean, I just, I just thought, but actually, just a second ago, by the way, about um, while you were saying that, I just suddenly thought, oh, um, the perspective crop tool. That's one of the things where you can, where you could actually say this is the correct way to do that, right? So you find four points inside of the thing you want to correct the perspective for, yeah, or crop to rather to create a new crop. So let's say you photographed a poster. And you want to bring that, you know, and it's slightly at an angle or whatever, and you want to bring that into full frame, then that is one of the things where you can say, well, what you do is this. You click at this point here, you click at this point here, here, and here. Look at the grid lines. If they kind of match up with the perspective, you can go ahead and hit return. So that's one of those instances where that is correct. That said, you could still have fun with it. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. You could still push it to used in used in ways that uh that that you know, weren't as described. But I have, um, back when I used to do classroom training, so I was a, a, an Adobe trainer for uh, for 10 years, okay? And in that time, uh, my the Photoshop courses that I used to run, so we'd have like a week of doing Photoshop, that sometimes you'd have split weeks, but generally you'd do a Photoshop masterclass week where you'd take people in, uh, intro level on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you'd be doing something that was much more intermediate leading onwards. And then they would always call the last, I hated the fact that they called the last day the expert day because it was about as close as learning how to use a first aid kit and then professing yourself to be a doctor, in my opinion. But marketing people market things how they want. So, um, but anyway, that, that zero to hero courses, they were called. But in those, I used to say to people, Photoshop, is a lot like Kung Fu. There are many different ways to achieve a result. The best result is the one that works for you. And just like Kung Fu, you will never, ever stop learning Photoshop. Yeah. Even things that you thought you knew, you could be a quote master, unquote, yeah, of Photoshop tickles me when people say that <laughs> i love it i think okay cool right and that's all i think is okay then <laughs> right well right cool um but you could be you could be a quote master unquote master in photoshop and someone who's been using it for a day a day can teach you something provided you're open yeah to learning it you know that's the beauty of it, though. That's what I love about things like Photoshop, for example. Because I remember um, last year, some point, I was, I was holding a talk at a uh, camera club, actually, and, uh, yeah. um, and I was going through a, a number of different retouching techniques. And then somebody in the audience just went, you know, I was doing this one thing, and somebody in the audience just went, oh, but wouldn't it be easier if you did this? And I just thought, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this. But yeah, yeah <laughs> it would be easier. And uh, that's how I've been doing it ever since. There you go. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. that's the beauty of it. Yeah, that is the absolute beauty of it. I, I did see someone once who um, this was uh, at Max in LA, and uh, actually was it, it was in LA that year because there were a couple of years where it was in different places. One year it went to San Diego, another year it, year it went to um, uh, Las Vegas. And for, for people who aren't familiar with Max, Max is the big Adobe conference of the year. It's, it's the, the main event. And it's always held in fall or autumn, depending on how you want to describe it and um, or refer to it. And uh, there was a, there was somebody, and I'm not going to name them, um, but there was I was 
at the back as a, as a Adobe staff member. And they said, uh, and this is the correct way to do it because I'm telling you that and I am your teacher. Or no, I am the master or something like that. And I just thought, wow, that is, I'm pretty certain you won't be back here for quite a while. <laughs> and I was right, as it turned out, they weren't. They're back now, but it. Uh, but I think they learned. There's a word called humility that yeah. I think they actually picked up at that particular at that particular point in their life. But oh man, honestly, it's uh, it's. I prefer the more open approach of. This is what I know, yeah. But if you've got something that you think might work, let's have a look at it. Let's see if it, you know, if it creates a new branch for me and for you, you know. Exactly, because I always think, you know, in any creative endeavor, in my mind anyway, yeah. you know, it's the end result that's the important part. Yeah. You know, if there's any, you know, the path that we get there. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's arduous. But if there's a way to make that easier, you know, or to make it less complicated, mm. then I'm always game, you know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Somebody could tell me, like, for instance, a good example would be, um, you know, Lightroom masking is a good example, you know, fairly yeah, recently. Which is amazing. Ago, yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. But it's yeah. such an improvement on the previous masking functionality yeah. that we had in, in Lightroom, you know, and uh, it just makes my life so much easier, Yeah, you know. I'm, I'm all ears when it comes to any any technique or any yeah. anything that you know makes my life easier and i can spend more time watching netflix <laughs> <laughs> yeah. life goals it's <laughs> exactly <laughs> the, yeah i mean my, lightroom masking is a great example because that is something that that is super super useful in that and other things so i know that you want to you you, you we, we, we mentioned that we'd, we'd talk a little bit about some of the stuff around generative AI because everybody's talking about generative mm -hmm. AI at the moment. One of the things that tickle, tickles me a little bit is that when people say it takes the drudgery out of creative work, yeah, and uh, I think, you know, it's not like going down into the cold, dark earth and fetching back coal. You know, that's <laughs> that's the thing. But, you know, little things, little things that really do help, like, like, masking in Lightroom yeah that they are they are a real bonus but sometimes you know in creativity the struggle to achieve something can actually be the reason the result looks the way it does you know because you're living that little bit more into it and I do wonder yeah. if with you know so the beta at the Photoshop beta at the moment with the uh, generative fill and that stuff is creating exciting results and creating interesting things. But I do wonder if there's something we'll be missing at some point in the future. I don't know. It's such a, it's a wide open area and you have to be, it depends how you use it, I guess. But. Sometimes those tools can, can yield results that are a little bit too perfect. I think, yeah. um, you know, sometimes it's the imperfections that make something work. Yeah. Uh, a good example would be, you know, uh, we mentioned uh, three ads in a row earlier. So one of the things that I do is pretty much, it's one of the final stages of the, when I put the whole thing together is um, I've created an overlay. Uh, so I shoot everything in front of her, just a pure black background and the texture yeah. that you'll see in the background is actually, that's an overlay that I've shot. And it's, it's a, it's a combination of uh, 
two textures that I actually combined. One was an icy window and the other one was a concrete slab. And I just basically, yep. I like the scratches on one and the texture on the other one, I put together yep. and I created this texture that I just like. Yep. And <clears throat> that texture to me, just like the table or the piece of wood that people sit at, is to me, that's that's a character in this in this mm -hmm. image. They yep. are like supporting actors. Yeah. You know. It's like a harmonizing element. It brings it all, um, yeah. Yeah, it ties it all together exactly, and that's you know that's why I keep certain elements the same. The way I light stuff um, is always the same. The uh, the the slab of wood that people sit at that looks mm. like a table, but it's actually just a it's part of a shelf. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. it was actually it was a, it was a shelf um, out of a out of a storage room uh, at a music yeah. center, and it okay. that, it broke. I saw that piece of wood and I thought, well, that looks great. I'm going to use that for something. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, and so, so these are like the, the things that, that tie everything together. But when I overlay this texture at the end, I could very simply just, you know, select the subject, put the texture on and, and, and mask it out. No yeah. problemo. But what I do instead is I like to use, um, I, I like to use a brush and brush yeah. it out manually. And it takes a lot longer, clearly. And it's also not as perfect. So what happens is you have bits of the texture that will maybe creep into the hairline or something like that, right? Yeah. But it's that that makes it look realistic and it yeah. makes it look like it's all in the same scene. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little bit like light wraparound, you know, in, in, yeah. a, in a way. Um, and I just, I just personally think it looks more realistic and that's why I keep doing it like this. Yeah. I could save myself yeah. a good five minutes. <laughs> You know, yeah. on every image, if I didn't do it like that, but you know, still, I, that's just how I like to do it. Yeah, but ge genuine actions produce a genuine-looking image. That's the thing because you've you've used you've used the the super 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 duper computer in your head that has taken a quite a long, it's quite an amount of time to get to the stage where we're currently at. You know, but you've used all of the things that you've learned in a, in your craft, and that's the thing. It's putting some craft into what you're doing. It's still um, an exciting, as an exciting an area it is at the moment. I still think it's being used largely in a novelty form, and I do think that they are even already are starting to look a little bit samey. You can kind of tell that they've been put in in that way especially if it's got things like fingers in it, saxophone, anything <laughs> like that, anything that's meeting the face, they're always super fun. I yeah. mean, it'll learn to get around those things. But the um, it's it's the absence of that craft. that, And also, you're not going to get clients that are going to turn around and say, oh, could you fill that with a la-la-la? That's why they hired you. You know, yeah. could you fill this with a, I don't know, a gleaming gold goblet with the word brand name here you know on top of it it's just i just don't work like that you know it's interesting it is an interesting area i mean there's there's more uh, that i'm interested in from a, a legal perspective at the moment than i am from the actual action expect uh, perspective but but there you go yeah that's going to be an interesting thing i mean i've, I've mentioned it in um in a variety of, of uh previous episodes so to me it it feels like we're basically it's it's the, what I call the Napster era. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you remember yeah. Napster, where yeah, yeah, yeah. where something's new. We're still in the discovery phase. You know, we're just yeah. exploring what's going on. Um, we're 
becoming aware of potential repercussions, like, you know, renumeration of artists and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, just like when, you know, when Napster first showed up on the scene, you know, at the very beginning it was like, ooh, what? I can download music for free. I don't have to pay for it. And it's directly on my computer. Fantastic. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it was only when, like, when all of a sudden, you know, those who were making the music started complaining, like, well, I can't carry on making music if I don't somehow get paid so I can pay my rent because <laughs> yeah. then I have to go and get another job, which means I won't be able to make any more music, yeah. which means that you're not getting the music that you enjoy listening to. So it comes back in a full circle and it just screws all of us, yeah. you know, and that's, that's what, that was what happened. You know, for those, for those listeners old enough, you might remember the Metallica eventually went to Sue Napster yeah. um, and won. And that's really why and we have... And that was that. <laughs> and that was that. Yeah, that was that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Was, yeah. And that's, but that's why we yeah. um, have Spotify yeah. and, you know, uh, Apple Music and, and the yeah. likes now, because it forced the industry to rethink and go, mm-hmm. well, actually, no, hang on a second. What can we do about this? So, and they figured that, you know, they come up with a system that, that remunerates artists to the most minimal extent possible, yeah. <laughs> but at yeah, least, yeah. you know, at least this is something. But I think you know, a similar thing is going to happen um, uh, when it comes to AI, because there seems to be a disconnect between people creating. I'm thinking in particular like stock photography, for example. Yeah. You know, um, that could be, that could be a dicey thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's depending on where you're acquiring it from. Now I know there are, there are, there are there are there are lots of different things around. The people who've who've had stuff that's been scraped from the Lion B five Lion five B uh, database. That's so things like Stability Diffusion, Mid Journey, those things. That's that's still potentially in hot water. Um, Adobe Stock are saying that that or Adobe are saying that the stuff that's generated in Fly, Firefly uh, comes from licensed Adobe Stock content and other things and out of copyright images. That those things are fine. Um, it's still a hot area to to mess with, and this is why at the moment um, Adobe are are playing it uh, pretty safe, and they're just saying this is experimental. Use it, but don't use it for anything commercial. That's what they're saying, and that that's a that's a thing where I'm I'm I am worried that some people are just like going yada yada, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, yeah. How will you know? Well. I wouldn't like to chance my career and reputation and income on, yeah, how would you know? Because as sure as eggs are eggs, it's going to be a way that somewhere, somewhere it will out. I mean, imagine if you'd done a shoot for, um, you know, for a large brand, deep, really, really large brand, uh, public facing, so uh, business to consumer, they needed shit. I'm just trying to think what sort of shoot it might be. Let's just say, for example, a food shoot, and you decided there was something else you wanted to add into the back of that, and so you generate, uh, you know, a, a nice cafe image that you can push into the background or whatever, and you've done that, and suddenly it all goes wrong, and actually that the courts in the UK and the US, and then of course around the entire world say, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. you could you could be. Yeah, I would. I would rather not be in that situation. I mean, I do use it. When I, now, I'm going to. I, I'm going to say this very carefully because I have used generative AI in a couple of areas of my professional work, but they are no way represented in the end product. 
So last week for a developing news story, I needed um, I needed a, I needed an image of something, and the only thing I could actually get hold of at the time was uh, a rendering um, from a technical uh, uh, diagram that had call outs, bullet points all over it, you know, with with call out lines and all of those things. And I needed this thing quickly, and I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to you know, retouch all of that stuff out and do that before I can even use it in the way that it's going to be used, which wasn't, as I say, end product. Generative AI did help me with that because the generative fill, I just basically lassoed all around all the ends of those bullet points and bam, they were gone. That was useful. And I wasn't introducing anybody, it was using the actual image as a, as a resource for that there was nothing entered into the prompt field so it was just going right i'll use the image and, and figure out what you need me to fix that's useful really really useful and then meant i could move it into the downstream process in which the image was only used as a basis for the stuff that came out so that's good in my in my uh illustrative work i use it to explore ideas a lot and to some degree in things that i'm going to photograph and assemble yeah i'll use it there because i will I have an idea of what it is I want. I will generate prompts around it. I will put things together into essentially a mock-up and then I'll build the actual work from there. So again, there's none of that stuff in my end product. It's all built after after that. Um, but my, my main concerns are around the fact that people will have a lower bar for what they want in terms of an image. That's a risk for me, I think that. The legal considerations are not um, not something you can really ignore. I spent five weeks talking to lawyers uh, and listening to lawyers and reading legal stuff for one of the things I was doing for my LinkedIn learning course, Design Tools Weekly. Five weeks of listening to lawyers. One of them, fortunately, was a friend of mine. Um, so that wasn't too bad. And he's actually a former um, president of the Association of Photographers. You might even know, have you ever heard of Nick Dunmer? So Nick Dunmer, he, he did a postgrad uh, diploma in law to help with, um, so he's not a lawyer, lawyer as such, but he's a legal advisor. He's a legal advisor for the AOP. Um, and he was able to decode the stuff that I couldn't decode um, from the conversations I had with lawyers. So I'd go to him every other day, pretty much, and say, so that the American lawyers said this, the British lawyers have said this, what does that actually mean? And the article in the Copyright Act that says about computer-generated works, um, and he he decoded that for me. I don't know if you know. Do you know what that line is? Do you know the line in the British Copyright Act about computer-generated works? I can't remember from the top of my head. And I, okay, well, no, I mean, hardly anybody can because it's yeah. just super obscure. The Copyright Act says that the copyright shall be held. This is another thing. Produce something, include generative stuff in it, and it's determined that you can't just do that. Then you've got a whole lot of derivative uh, to cough up for, but that's another story. But anyway, the copyright shall be held with the person who made the arrangements. That's what the law says. And then there's no there's no clarification in that act as to what that means because it was done in 1996. Yeah, and there weren't too many computers around then. <laughs> no, true, yeah. You know, and certainly not ones that were generating work. So there aren't any Photoshop it was only just a few years old at that point. But yeah, so it's a, it's a hotbed of stuff. I should imagine you'll be talking about it a lot. 
in in podcasts for quite a while. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's you know, and it's only I think it's only the beginning. You know, we we yeah. still talk. You know, I mean, the thing to remember is that we're talking about th- something that's actually that's just in beta. Yeah, for the most part, exactly. you know, it's not even yeah. it's not even out yet. No, you know, and it's exciting, but you know, caveats. Exactly. I mean, it's exciting. Um, I think it's you know, I sort of I think of it as probably a similar event as when Photoshop first arrived on the scene and all of those guys who were shooting film previously just went, what? <laughs> What's happening there? You know, um, but I think, you know, eventually it, it will take its place, you know, within, yeah. within, within the realm of post-processing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so if, just, just quickly, if you'd, if you'd, for example, taken, um, a shot of someone walking along uh, through uh, a desert in in a lovely big flowing dress. I see lots of shots like that. But deserts being deserts don't always behave the way you want them to. And, of course, another thing in deserts are footprints. Yeah, so, you know, let's just say that your art director said, oh, that ground just doesn't look dry enough, right? Now, you going and acquiring an image of a dusty, cracked desert and then manipulating it into the perspective that you need it to use it is fine and that's what has happened ever since photoshop introduced layers right in photoshop 3 yeah that's fine but you know where the dusty floor came from and the chances are you paid for that image or you're giving attribution for that image to my mind what needs to happen for me if if i'm truly settled with generative AI in Photoshop and Lightroom, I need to know that I'm not exploiting anybody else's stuff without their consent. Well, I mean, that's the virtue of exploitation, right, is that you're doing it without uh, their consent. But I'd, I'd, I'd want it to be, if Adobe is saying this is, um, this is ethical AI, I actually want, I want hard proof of that. Ideally, yeah, and a noticeable, you know, a, a noticeable, um, or sort of a, not going to put this, you know, a system that we can all understand. Yeah, you know, that's that's the thing. I mean, it's a little bit like you know, Spotify. I always use that as an example. You know, you pay that's subscription. Good yeah, you yeah. Sub- you pay subscription every month, and for that you can listen to music, and yeah. that money, at least part of it, albeit a very small part of it, will eventually go to the artist that you listen yeah. to. You know, and so you, you know. Although, I mean, as a, you know, as a musician, and and as a former session musician, you know, I used to work in the music industry, mm. and uh, you know, I still don't feel one hundred percent comfortable with the sort of minimal remuneration that artists will get mm. from like literally millions of of listens on Spotify. You know, mm. there's still, I think, there's still sort of an imbalance between, you know, the way the end product is used and and how the original artist is being recompensed for that, yeah. you know? Um, and of course I, f- I think that because I I'm old enough to have seen the other side, if that makes mm. sense, you know, yeah. um, younger artists that are coming up now don't have that advantage, you know, or, or maybe disadvantage nowadays. I mean, maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's just better to just, you know, accept the way <laughs> things are at the moment. Things are. Yeah. You know, but I think, um, I mean, it's a similar thing with um, generative AI. I think I, yeah, I like the fact that, 
Adobe are uh, limiting the the pool of images that they they pick from, yeah. um, and at least there's a certain degree of control over that, so that you yeah. can actually say, okay, well, you know, here's a pool of of images, and you know, here's a number of contributors to that pool, mm-hmm. and then you know, if we did think of let's say a subscription based system, for example, then you know, it's fairly straightforward, and, and yeah. we're used to those kind of systems already now, so. You know, that true. to me would make uh, sense. Yes. And Adobe actually are um, are going quite away uh, with things like the Content Authenticity Initiative and also the introduction of a do not train uh, meta tag in the image. The only thing is with that, and, uh, you know, that's still an area where they're still working on that on working on introducing that how do you how do you make that work how do you make sure that nobody does it you know you know nobody if they come if a if a um if a system comes across that tag how do you make sure that it ignores it for those things so they're working very very hard on doing that i love that the only thing i do love would would love more is if they made it so it wasn't elective yeah so that automatically and by default you had do not train on all of your images yeah or you could just you could just bulk apply that which you probably will be able to in the fullness of time in bridge or or lightroom you know be able to just apply a do not train tag to it but i would much rather you didn't have to do that unless you specifically wanted your images to be included in that and at some point hopefully in the future be compensated for for your part in that that thing it is it there's it's it's come very very quickly very very you know very it's come a long way very, very quickly, I think is it, what I'm trying to say there. Yeah, it's been extraordinary, um, the the speed at which this technology has all of a sudden not only appeared on the scene, but also dramatically improved from, you know, the first, I remember the first of news reports of DALI, which was last August, you know, between yeah. now and then, it's not even a year, and how yeah. far, you know, has that come. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I think, you know, AI is, um, of course, it's a, it's a big news story in a sense uh, in terms of technology, but there's there's VR on the horizon as well, which is now yeah. s- seeming to make um, strides. How do you see how do you see um, changes in in the in the landscape of design and you know content creation and so on and so forth mm. with VR? Yeah, well, that is an area that uh, I don't spend too much time in at the moment. AR, AR, so augmented reality is is an area that I'm spending a lot of time. VR, I'm not. I don't really know. I'm still not sure about how I know how I feel entirely about why you know gaming VR, perfect. Simulation VR for certain reasons also great. I just don't know about that. I don't know how healthy that's going to be for people more than anything else in uh, in their day to day lives, you know. But I mean, I could well be a dinosaur on the on the edge of meeting that great meteorite. I don't know, <laughs> but it's uh, it. I don't think it's going to go away. I th- uh, but I just I just really don't know at the moment because I really don't. It's just not an area. I I worked with a couple of the, when I was at Adobe. I, one of the a couple of the accounts I went on were gaming accounts. I remember seeing very, very early uh, VR sets. Um, an amusing story for not on the podcast. I've got about one of those with a colleague, but 
the um, who was told specifically only to look forward didn't and paid the price. But anyway, like I said, another story for another day. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd love to. I'd love to have a have a play with one of those uh, headsets that uh, Apple came out with or have announced at WWDC, but. Three plus what is it? Three thousand seven hundred dollars for uh, for one of those? Maybe not at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it seems nuts. It seems nuts. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's almost know, as much as my electricity bill. Well, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, collaboration between photographers and uh, designers and clients, for example. Yeah. Um, are there any sort of emerging tools or platforms that you believe? will shape that form of collaboration in the future? Uh, so in terms of imagery, I mean, there, there are already systems that will work within the uh, Adobe sphere that um, that can help with collaboration. I mean, Creative Cloud is a collaborative platform. You can still use it to share single images or bunches of images or entire shoots in that way uh, and have feedback on them in terms of video of course adobe have frame io which which is a, a fantastic i don't know if you've ever experienced that but in terms of working with clients and, and other collaborators with video it's fantastic you know you might you can drop a comment on any part of a timeline literally on top of the footage you just add your comment or you can highlight things you know um mark them up and when that footage appears for the other the other people using on Frame.io, they can literally click on that comment, much like you might do in a PDF, for example, or a Word document even, or a Google document, and um, and it will take you directly to that part, which is which is brilliant. The um, I'm trying to think. I I mean that really I stick most of my stuff because I've worked with Adobe for such a long time. And we're still good friends, and I still work with them, uh, just not on staff. Um, I tend to think you've made this already; it works perfectly well for me, so I'm happy with using that. So I don't really use anything outside of that because for me it works well. But then again, I'm not shooting at the volume that you're probably shooting. Yeah, in that you know, it's not my main occupation, but it is connected to my work. So I maybe make. I, may, I don't even know if I make a tenth of the images that you make, but, you know, um, but for me, that works. Um, yeah, those, those are the things I use, to be honest. I use all of the stuff within Creative Cloud that I have access to, and it works for me. Fantastic. And you mentioned Adobe Express earlier. Yep. Um, where are the advantages of using Adobe Express for um, for photographers who want to um, maybe create, you know, more imagery for social media. If we just come back to that for a second. Yeah, 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 sure. So Adobe, do you know Adobe? When I first heard of Adobe Express, I, I was like, oh, why would I look at that? But I was very, very wrong. And actually, it is a great, great tool if you want to do things quickly and get them scheduled into your social calendar so that they deploy without any further interaction from you. On desktop, uh, Adobe Express is a fantastic tool. So if you want to add a little bit of text or something else or tune your image or tone it or do any of those things, Adobe Camera Express has 
it's even got like a tiny subset of the Lightroom tools to play with. So you can adjust the, the um, I don't think there's an, I can't recall if there's an exposure control, but you can adjust the brightness, the contrast, you can adjust the tint, uh, you can tune the shadows, the highlights, the midtones, all of those things with a bunch of sliders. Very, very quick. You're in one interface. And then you think, okay, well, I've tuned that the way I want, I've cropped it the way I want. Or let's say you want to produce for, let's say you're producing for Instagram, TikTok, um, uh, YouTube, Twitter, yeah, all of those things, and you want to do it all at the same time in one file. Adobe Express lets you do that. Yeah, and now here I'm talking about the current beta that works. It does it in the earlier version, but in the current beta, it is so much more streamlined to do that. Then you can do that. You could get so let's say I worked on if I thought my primary I want to use this image, and the primary place I want to put it is in Instagram. Yeah, then I'll add all of the things I want to it. Yeah, so I might want to add a little bit of text. Yeah, I might want to tone it slightly. I might even want a moving element on it, which I can do there as well. So you've got you can animate parts of that. Once I've got that and all of the elements that I want across all of the platforms that I want to do or to, to deploy to, I just simply say uh, resize. And then you've got a whole list of more social platforms than you could possibly imagine. There's a lot. Uh, and you can just check, 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 and then do duplicate and resize. And the next thing, you've got a project with all of those things resized. There's some intelligence in there, so you'll notice things have moved yeah, to certain boundaries, and you, of course, move them to, you tune that to be however you want. And then you push that into the scheduler in Adobe Express and publish from there. That is a good system, a really good system. And it impresses me no end. I, love it. I, I spoke about it at Stanford School of Continuing Medicine actually a little while ago, <laughs> uh, which was just a weird ask. We'd like you to come and talk to us about Adobe Express. Okay, cool. Why? And then I forgot that in America, of course, physicians have to market themselves. So either they or people that work for them have to have those kind of skills for marketing themselves. Interesting stuff. But yeah, I would have a look at that. It's a great way to push. And if you're doing things, videos, if you want to put out a load of different video thumbnails for that, it can do all of those. And again, put them all into the same project. And if you want one of them to be animated, animate it. Easy. Sounds like I should be looking into that. You should definitely. And if, <laughs> you know, you, like... you should be looking at it. And I think it costs, it's ridiculous. It's something like £8 a month or whatever it is. So Tony, if there was one tip that you would give photographers who are looking to um, sort of boost their online presence through the imagery online uh, and on social media, what would it be? Uh, create a frequency that you're happy with and that you can sustain yeah, for when you post. And that will be the one thing that brings you into, into more people's feeds. It's the one thing I am, I'm great at reminding people of. It's the one thing I'm terrible at. Um, I just rely on my charm, good looks and humour, but the <laughs> to see how it goes and we can see how that's working out. But from what I know, it, it is, it is choose a frequency that you can sustain, right? Because if, if you say, right, I'm going to post every day, you probably can't unless you've got a team with you, right? Because it's more, you know, if, if you try, try and do it, right? Don't actually post, just try and do it for, try and do it for three weeks. 
and say, I'm going to create a post every day to see how that works out, right? Because it, it is involves a lot of effort. So choose a frequency. The frequency doesn't, I mean, if the frequency is once a year, you might as well just post erratically whenever you want to. Weekly is good if you can sustain it, yeah? Semi-weekly is brilliant if you can sustain it, yeah? So if you can say, right, okay, I can post twice a week, that's a good frequency, yeah? It means that after a couple of months, the algorithm will start reporting, yeah, that you are a reliable poster and will start to promote you. It's that simple, yeah? So do that. Choose a frequency that works for you and keep that going. That is the single best tip I think I can offer you for or offer everyone here um, to improve their presence. Fantastic. Tony, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for talking to us. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see you again in the not too distant future and definitely at the photography show. Fantastic. It's been great talking to you, Kirst. Thanks ever so much for having me on. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's all for today. What an incredible chat with the design ninja himself. But before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you'll like. Episode 103 with Adobe legend Russell Preston Brown. I'm sure you love it. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully fledged video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you are on YouTube already, get in touch and leave a comment. Remember to hit the like button, ring that bell, and share with your friends. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. Once again, thank you for listening and watching, and I'll see you next Thursday.